Father, we're thankful for the mystery that by the proclamation of your word, your will is done. And it is a mystery, Father, for you use the weakness of men and and our poor words and our incomplete, insufficient strength and holiness. But somehow, by that work, you turn these things, Father, into new spiritual life. You turn our words into the, to an opportunity to grow people into the likeness of Christ. We become more holy merely by the proclamation of your word and its work in our hearts. And so, Father, we take it seriously. We give it its priority. We set our Bible before us on a Sunday morning when many others choose not to do so. For we know that no matter what men may invent as a means to the end that you alone can bring about, we recognize you've given us the perfect means already. First, in your Son, who was the Word. And secondly, Father, by the Scriptures in front of us this morning, which preserve the Word for future generations. And let us, Father, be worthy of the privilege it is to have them in our hands this morning. Worthy by our obedience and by our diligence and our sincerity of heart to hear what you have read, uh, prepared to bring us this morning. So use this preaching, Father, as you are so kind and merciful to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And we're back in Genesis 17. We stop right in the middle, in more ways than one, really, of, of a story about two covenants. In fact, I want to begin just by rereading the main section from last week where we had left off, because I want it to be fresh in your minds. I want us to all be on the same page, literally and figuratively. So let's go to Genesis 17. We'll start again in chapter 17, verse 7. Let's just read back down to 14 where we ended last week. God speaking to Abraham says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, Now, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. And this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God, as we said last week, presented Abraham with a new covenant here, working in conjunction with the first covenant. God called this new covenant, the one of circumcision, a sign of his earlier covenant that we call the Abrahamic covenant. So you could say, I guess, this is a tale of two covenants, and as Abraham himself probably would have said, it was the best of times and the worst of times, to borrow from Dickens, because no doubt he was pleased to know that all of that rigmarole with him and Hagar and Ishmael has not weakened God's resolve to keep his promise to Abraham, which he made concerning descendants and the land and and inheritance. But on the other hand, he probably wasn't too thrilled to find out that circumcision now was going to be the sign 
of that earlier covenant. Last week we were trying to understand the spiritual meaning of the covenant of circumcision, its relationship to the Abrahamic covenant, and ultimately its relationship to saving faith. Let's try to understand how they all are working together, if at all, in this moment. We said that the covenant of circumcision was a two-way covenant, different than the first covenant. Two-way meaning both parties here had obligations. God said he had some obligations to Abraham, and then he gave Abraham obligation. He had to do something new. In this case, the father of a family was the one who had to actually take the step of obedience when they chose to circumcise a son, a child, on the eighth day. So that led us to conclude this is a cross-generational covenant. The terms, in other words, are moving forward in time as the obedience takes place in the family. As one man does what he's supposed to do obediently, he is bringing a new generation into the covenant. If that father failed to circumcise their male child as required, we said last week that that would have been a breaking of the covenant of circumcision. And by breaking the covenant of circumcision, that man was separating his future family line from participating in the earlier covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. So it was cross-generational. It demanded obedience from the parents to ensure the children were counted part of the covenant to Abraham. The nation of Israel was being perpetuated through their line. The children who were circumcised were becoming part of the next generation of Israel. And if the family denied the sign, if they did not keep that covenant, they were ceasing their family from being a part of Israel. Why did God want Abraham and his descendants to carry this new sign, the sign of circumcision, in their bodies forever? Well, first, I want you to consider what happened in chapter 16. Earlier in that chapter, Abraham and Sarai had concluded that God's promises were only going to be available to them if they, in their own power, went out and made an error. So that led to Hagar, that led to Ishmael. That's what chapter 16 was about. And that line of Hagar coming through Ishmael, that line of descendants will have blessings of their own. God made those promises to Hagar, but they are not parties to the Abrahamic covenant. Ishmael is not a party to the covenant. He and his descendants will not be included in the promises God made to Abraham. It is ending with Ishmael. So now, in this chapter, God is responding to the problem that Abraham created by having a child with Ishmael. Because now a question arises from Abraham's behavior. What will distinguish the descendants of Abraham who are in versus the descendants of Abraham who are not in the promises given to Abraham? God establishes a second covenant of circumcision to designate who will share in the promises of the first And who will not? The covenant does not take priority over the earlier covenant. A person, for example, like Ishmael, couldn't force his way into the promises of the Abrahamic covenant simply by going out and getting circumcised. He didn't somehow create for himself a promise by taking on circumcision. But if someone was a descendant of Abraham, and they are told here to keep this covenant as a sign or as a reminder of the earlier covenant, and if they were to fail to do that, then they would invalidate their future generations from participating in that covenant. So why did this covenant come along? To allow for God to distinguish who would be in and who would be out physically in terms of the covenant to Abraham, who was in the nation of Israel. Secondly, to the nature of the sign itself, the idea of cutting the man's body, why is that the sign that God chose? Well, first, it's a reminder of the blood covenant because you could not perform circumcision without the spilling of blood. 
In fact, there was a debate among Jewish rabbis and schools of thought for what would happen if somebody were brought into the nation of Israel as a servant. You notice the covenant also applied to servants. So what if you bought a servant and brought them into your household and yet they had already been circumcised because they were part of some pagan cult, let's say, that practiced it as well? Were you obligated to to try to cut them again to draw blood or not? And the Jewish conclusion was you would cut them again, not in any significant way, there was not much to cut, but you would draw blood just for the sake of ensuring blood was spilled because the Jewish view was the whole idea was to remind the participant of the blood covenant that was in place between Abraham and God. Secondly, it involves the reproductive organ And that in itself is a reminder of the eternal nature of the promise from generation to generation. This promise is being extended multi-generationally and the adopting of a sign in each new generation showed where the passing of the promise lay in the next generation, in the moving forward of the seed, the seed promise. So it was connected to the nature of the covenant itself, a multi-generational covenant. In Israel, Jewishness is transferred through the man. You are Jewish because your father is Jewish. But a woman was included in this covenant by virtue of the fact that she was either under her father's authority or she was under her husband's authority. And as such, under her father's authority, his circumcision became the covering for that family to be in the covenant. And if she married, she would have had to marry a a good Jewish man who was also in the covenant, and then she would be covered by him. So that's how women were included in this. They were covered by virtue of being part of the same generation that's included in the covenant. But if anyone along the way should forego this sign, they are making a decision for their family that for hereafter, we are not participating in this covenant of Abraham. They cut themselves off, so to speak. In fact, in the Hebrew, there's a word play. God says, for anyone who does not cut themselves, he will be cut off from the nation of Israel. So by changing Abram's name to Abraham... And by making a circumcision, Abraham's life now becomes a living testimony to the covenant that God gives him. In the first covenant, God delivered Abraham's saving faith, and he delivered all the promises and the guarantees. And that came strictly because God made a promise. Similarly, when God granted us grace through faith, there was no condition. You didn't have to go run out and do something in order to be part of the family of God by faith. We have a similar future to Abraham because we've been grafted into those promises by the same manner, by faith. And the glory we will have in the future is dependent solely on the faithfulness of God to his promises. But then God comes along and tells Abraham and his descendants, here's a new covenant, a second one, a sign of the first, keep this or else. If they obey that covenant, then the next generation carries the promise forward. If they disobey They cease their testimony and their opportunity in future generations is cut off. Is there a parallel for us? Well, we have a call in our lives, don't we? To to live as a testimony to our faith. We are called to obey Christ's commandments. That's why we're told in the Great Commission, as we go out, we are to teach others to obey all that Jesus commanded us. We are to obey and teach others to obey what Christ commanded. That's our mission of testimony. Now, if we fail in doing that, what's our consequence? If we don't keep the Lord's commandments in our life as testimony, then though we don't forfeit the first covenant, we disobey his instructions, 
And as such, we put at risk the opportunity to see our testimony continue in future generations. Wouldn't you agree? We're not suggesting here that God is obligated to bring faith into the next generation by virtue of our obedience. But that's the essence of God's commandment in Proverbs when he says, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. The essence of that commandment is, when every part of your life is a testimony to God in all that you say and do and believe, the propensity is for God to take that and use it to great effect in your life and in the lives of other people, particularly in the next generation. If, though, you're like a person of Israel who says, I know what God has said, but I don't want to practice this, that is something like a believer today who, though they have faith and they know the truth, selects to live in a way that is not reflective of that belief, there are consequences. Sometimes our children come to faith despite us, but the reality is that the potential for that to happen is far greater when our life is picturing Christ properly than when it's not. It's just a general rule, no guarantees, but it's generally true. When we live according to God's commands, we don't make salvation sure, but we do have an influence. Abraham's been told to receive circumcision, and the command God gave was to produce a testimony, not to produce salvation. It's a big difference. One can be a means to the other, but only as God chooses to do so. And that, by the way, is clear enough, just in the very fact that the covenant that he gave Abraham here involves taking an eight-day-old child and circumcising them. If this was about salvation at any level, how could we connect the dots? How could we say that that eight-year-old is somehow seeing their eternal destiny influenced by whether the dad does something or not when they're eight days old. There's no biblical basis for coming to that conclusion. What if I go four or five generations into the future from Abraham and I show up in Israel and I find Jews practicing circumcision? Is that bringing them to faith? Is that the equivalent for them of entering into faith? Is God obligated by the fact that they take circumcision to grant them the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant all the way into eternity? The answer is no. Some in Israel believed, some didn't, even though they were all circumcised. And those Jewish men who failed to believe in the promises were not saved simply because their parents circumcised them. It doesn't work that way. It never has. And obviously women weren't saved when their fathers were circumcised. That has no direct obligation for God on them. The obedience was simply a sign of the covenant. It didn't equal faith itself. Paul taught this pointedly in Romans chapter 2 and into chapter 3. Listen to what Paul says on this point. Paul says in 2.28, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. He says, well, then what advantage has the Jew Isn't that a great question when you think about this for a minute? God's gone to the trouble to give Abraham these great blessings in his first covenant and then giving the second covenant of circumcision. And Paul says, well, that didn't determine who who was saved, who was a Jew in spirit terms. That comes out of a circumcision of the heart, a belief in God's promises. And so he says, well, then what was the benefit for someone being counted a Jew by circumcision? What is the benefit of circumcision? Paul goes on to answer. He says, great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Paul then says, well, what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man may be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. 
A true Jew is one who is saved by faith, resulting in the marking of the Spirit on their heart. A greater circumcision is accomplished when we believe in God's promises, resulting in the circumcision of the heart. And that's the work of spirit. That's the work of the spirit at the moment of faith. So we can say, male or female, that when we believed, we had our hearts circumcised, so to speak. God cut away the unbelief and left a soft, tender heart that he can work with. That's a sign of our current covenant of faith. When we receive physical circumcision today, if we circumcise our children, for example, today, it makes no difference with respect to salvation. It never did and still doesn't. So Paul then asked that obvious question, what advantage was it to be included then in this covenant of circumcision? What what benefit did it give to the Jew? Paul says there was great advantage because it made them part of Israel, defining who was Israel physically. Paul says it was very good to be part of the nation of Israel because the nation of Israel was the people entrusted with the word of God. They're the one people group in the world, in all history, that God saw fit to give his word. This is why we have this. It was written by Jews, because God gave them the word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. If I am of the people who are destined to receive the word of God, am I in a better position or in a worse position for obtaining salvation? Versus being a Gentile living on the other side of the world who has no concept of the word of God. Where do you think I'm better suited if my interest is in becoming a child of God? That's why Paul says there was great advantage in being circumcised because it left you in the family of Abraham inside the nation of Israel where you could hear and receive the word of God, where you had the best opportunity to know the living God. Or you could forego that and walk away from the nation of Israel. It didn't make you a believer. It didn't require that outcome. It didn't force God's hand, but it put you in the right spot. That's one of the reasons why I think as Christians we long sometimes to see our unbelieving friends or family join us on Sundays. We understand, I know we all understand that we don't have to bring them into this building for them to be saved. It's similar to circumcision. In the time of Abraham and and Isaac and Jacob, circumcising someone didn't make them saved. But it was a good thing to do because of God's commandment and because it brought them into an association with the place and time and people where God was at work, which is a much better thing than not. And I think in a similar way, we tell ourselves, if I can bring so-and-so with me to church, even just one Sunday, maybe they'll hear something. And that's a good heart. There's nothing wrong with that. We know that they're not saved because they walk in. We just know that they're in a better place, potentially, for God to do that work. That's the sense of this here. Paul says there was great advantage if they would follow that covenant. And then Paul asks at the very end of my little passage I read, if someone who received circumcision and they weren't saved, did that somehow nullify God's promises to Abraham? Did it suggest that God was not keeping his promises to Abraham? Remember, he promised Abraham this great inheritance, this great future, this eternal blessing for all those who are in the covenant. And the sign of that covenant will be circumcision. And so Paul backs us through that. And he says, wait a minute, if they took circumcision but didn't believe, does that nullify what God said? Did it make God a liar? And Paul says, no. Because it was never the deal to begin with. It's never the means. It was never the intent. The benefits of being circumcised were simply earthly benefits that included having access to God's word and to God's people. 
But through those earthly benefits, there could be great spiritual blessing. There's an interesting parallel for the Christian today. We have received the promises of faith in that one-way covenant through Christ, through Christ's blood. Our belief in those promises bring us salvation, and they don't depend on our performance. But there are commands for us to keep, one of which, by the way, is to be baptized in water. Now think about the parallel between circumcision for the Jew and baptism for the Christian. We are commanded to be baptized in water. It's a step of obedience. But its effect, its purpose, is to welcome us into the body of believers, to make us part of a group of people who are marked and set aside by faith as God's people. It doesn't make us God's people. It doesn't replace faith. But it's a means of identification so that we can enjoy the full benefits of faith, of our fellowship and our association in faith. If a Christian, a one who has true faith, does not receive baptism as a matter of conscious choice, if they make that determination, they are cutting themselves off from affiliation with the people that they should be a part of. And over time, that's going to have its effect in their life, in their family life, and in, their, and in future generations. But it does not remove their own personal salvation if they believe. Conversely, someone can desire baptism, ask for it, and receive it, and yet never come to faith. It's possible. They'll gain the earthly benefit of affiliation, but they'll never have the eternal benefit that only faith provides. You see how it can work both ways? And the same was true in the nation of Israel through circumcision. There were uncircumcised, believing Jews who were cut off. There were unbelieving, circumcised Jews who were included in the nation of Israel but never gained access to the promises of Abraham. And God turns at the end of this chapter to his wife. And let's finish with Sarai, verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. When he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. So as he did earlier with Abraham, God now changes Sarai's name to Sarah, which is, as you remember last week, the insertion of a syllable of God's own name into her name, melding their two names together. Sarai becomes Sarah from Yahweh. Abram becomes Abraham from Yahweh. A sign of the covenant between them that they now share a part of God's name and their name. The meaning of her name changes only subtly. With Abraham it was exalted father becoming father of many nations. That's how the name changes in its meaning. Here the name is a princess to the princess. The name change here is not so much about the meaning but rather the very fact that it happens 
This is the only woman in all Scripture to see her name changed by God. The only one. Her experience here is the proof that the covenant of circumcision covers women as well. This is their proof that we're not only talking about men here being in the covenant. Whether by their husbands or their fathers, they are included in the promises and in the covenant keeping of circumcision through that relationship. And Sarah here receives her name change because her husband is a party to this covenant of circumcision. And so it continues into the Jewish line today. Let's be clear as we finish with her. The whole idea of a covenant of circumcision is uniquely Jewish. It is a part of the Jewish covenant with Abram, turned Abraham. It is about perpetuating the nation of Israel. I can give you a simple analogy to help you understand what we mean when we say the nation of Israel. Lake Travis is a body of water here in Austin. As we sit here right now, there are certain specific molecules of H2O sitting in Lake Travis. If it were possible to number them and track them, we would notice that over time they leave. And if we come back in this room a year from now, Lake Travis will still be here, but the molecules in that lake will be different. Is Lake Travis no longer Lake Travis because the water molecules that were there on one day leave and new ones show up? No. We don't think of it like that, do we? It's Lake Travis because it's a body of water, period. That's how you need to conceive of Israel in the way the scriptures think of Israel. It matters not to God who the human beings are in Israel on any given day. Only it matters that there is an entity called out, called Israel, and that entity will never go away. And God will always know who is that entity, and he works his promises through whomever is today and whoever is tomorrow in that entity, but it is the entity that God is about preserving. And one day that entity will be brought into its glory as the chief nation on the earth. It's only a matter of God's providence and work in the heart to determine who those people are. That's his business. But the story of the scripture is of an entity being created and preserved. In this moment, the sign of who is in that entity is established. And based on that, if a Jew becomes a believer today in the church, they are still obligated by this covenant to perpetuate circumcision in their family as long as they would like their family to be counted part of the nation of Israel. It doesn't negate their faith. It doesn't have anything to say with their faith. It only has to say about their identity in that way. Now, in this passage, God reveals for the very first time something we've talked about here already. Sarah is going to be the mother of the child under the promise. Do you remember a few weeks back we talked about how even though God had made multiple promises that there would be a son from Abraham, he had never said who the wife would be, who the mother, rather, would be. And that led Sarai to conclude back in chapter 16 that maybe it needed to be another woman. Maybe that was the problem. And so she offered up her handmaiden. But now God has said explicitly, it will not only be Abraham, but it will be Sarah. She will be the mother. Nations and kings will come from her. And we know that's historically true. Not only does Israel come from her, but so does Edom originate from her. And through the lost tribes of Israel, many Gentile nations now originate out of this woman. But this is not what they expected to hear. Look what Abraham does. Falls on his face, and not in the same sense as we've seen him do before. This is like you roll on the floor laughing. That's what he's doing right here. He's fallen down laughing on the ground. He's finding this whole thought so hilarious. At first glance, this whole scene here with him laughing would appear to contradict earlier statements in Genesis concerning Abraham being righteous by faith because he believes the promise 
that God will bring him many descendants. That was the basis for his faith. God said, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, God shows up 24 years later and says, it's time for the baby. Sarah, this time next year we'll have a baby. And Abraham's response is, rolling on the floor laughing. Some at first glance would say, this seems to suggest Abraham doesn't have that faith anymore. But in reality, this statement actually shows you how much he believed. How strongly he accepted what God said. Knowing that God could do exactly what God has said will happen is the reason why Abraham is laughing so hard. It's at the thought of it all. He's 99 years old. And he's saying to himself, really? You're going to have me have the baby and her have the baby? We're actually the plan here? And he laughs in the sense of, you've got to be kidding. I can't have a baby right now. It would be like the 42-year-old woman and the 45-year-old husband who come home from the doctor one day to find out they're about to have a late-in-life pregnancy. They're not doubting the doctor's diagnosis. They're just incredulous at the idea. It can't be happening. We can't be having a baby right now. This is not the plan. This is not how I want it to happen. I can imagine this going on. I'm thinking, how am I going to do this? Some of you have had this experience probably. And that's the sense in which you're reading this. Abraham knows darn well this can happen if God chooses to do it this way. That's why he says what he says concerning Ishmael. He says, oh, that Ishmael would live before you. It's like, here's the one you want. No, 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 no. Forget that other one. Here, this one will work. This one will work. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to tell God, how about we just stay with Ishmael? That would be a lot easier for all of us. And God says, no. He rejects it. He does it with compassion and firmness. He says, I am determined by my own hand to bring a child according to my promise and do so in a way that brings me the glory. I am not going to use your second-hand efforts through Hagar and Ishmael to do what I alone have appointed to do. Your child was created in your own flesh, by your own will. This child will be the product of my work in your life by faith, by my promise. In that, we have an important reminder. Our work for God counts for nothing. We bring nothing to the table. We add nothing to his plan. There is not a thing he wants to do that he needs us for. Not a thing. That is one of the things I tend to bring to mind as often as I possibly can, particularly when I start feeling good about myself and how much uh, good work I do and how important I am. I start to tell myself, nothing God needed would have been dependent on me. I add nothing. It's not just false modesty. It's the truth. I add nothing. In fact, I take away it's slower because of me. It's harder because of me. It's more error-prone because of me. That's the nature of a sinful person trying to do the work only God can do. I add nothing. Well, then why am I involved? For his glory and for my benefit. That's a sobering thing. But what it does is it pulls you back from that prideful moment of saying, you know, that church doesn't know how good they've got it. I'm not saying I think that, but that's where it goes. Or worse, a worse response is, how come they're not doing this for me? Or why isn't it not the way I need it to be for me? If you feel anything even approaching that thought, stop right there and tell yourself, God doesn't need me, neither do they. And in fact, with this heart and this mind, it's probably better that he doesn't get anything from me. God will do what he said he will do, and when they tried to help, they made it worse. And when Abraham now in this moment hears that it's going to be next year, and it's going to be him, and it's going to be Sarah... His first thought is, I prefer my own work. And you know, that's exactly what we do. If God has got us on a path that's different than the one we want, we try to convince him our path is better. I mean, one way or another, right? We try to rationalize out why what we want to do in the first place is still the right path. 
If you ever wonder if God has a sense of humor, look what he does. When he tells Abraham the name of this future child, he says his name will be Isaac. You know what Isaac means in Hebrew? Laughing. He laughs. He laughs. So Abraham's lying on the ground laughing about the prospect he's going to have a child, and God says, okay, his name is laughing. We'll see what you feel like in a year. Think it's funny now? What, twins? No, I'm saving that for your son. He names him Isaac. Was the name always to be Isaac? It's a sign of God's sovereignty that Abraham's response would match the name God intended for this man. Now, obviously, this child's name is going to be a reminder to Abraham forever about this attitude, this moment in his life in which it wasn't a lack of faith, but it was that prideful insertion of self into the work of God that we're all prone to do. And God needed a permanent reminder in his life that Abraham decided to do it his own way. For generations, those tribes and nations that he just said would come, the 12 princes, those are the 12 tribes that form the nations of Arabs today. They will be lifelong enemies of Israel, causing untold misery for Isaac's descendants because Abraham decided to do it his own way. And he tells Abraham that Ishmael will have some blessings and then he concludes his appearance. Let's read the rest of the chapter. 23. Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all the servants who were born in his house and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day as God had said to him. Now, Abraham was 99 years old when he, circumcised, when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the very same day, Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael, his son. All the men of his household who were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. In this moment, he complies with the covenant of circumcision. It would have been, by the way, very painful. We'll actually see it later in Genesis stories of men being circumcised as adults couldn't move for three days. That was the effect of it. You can also guess he was very unpopular in his home on that day. But three months later, the covenant begins its work with him as the father of the child of promise with a woman who had never before had a child. Sometimes God in our lives will come in a dramatic way and give us dramatic revelation as he did here for Abraham. But in my experience, it's usually different. It's usually a long, slow struggle against the flesh and against the enemy. And along that path of struggle, we're going to have to risk at times being hurt. At times, we're going to have to risk being unpopular to follow what God has asked us to do, of even spilling blood, so to speak, as they did here. And we can't imagine how God is going to use our obedience because he's at work in so many ways that are above our ways both for his own glory and for our blessing. But when we take a step of obedience, which is what Abraham did here, notice how obedient this man was, despite his laughter, despite his activity with Hagar years earlier. When the message came from God, look what he did. No delay, no excuses, no pondering. Remember what we've said here in the past. Obedience in our walk of faith is not about perfection. It's about persistence. This man failed in the past, but he didn't fail on this day. Let's go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we have by faith something we could never earn by works. But we have through our works the opportunity to glorify your name in obedience. Our works mean nothing to you apart from faith, but our faith, Father, is useless and dead if it is not accompanied by works.
You tell us all these things. And you show us in the word this morning a man who at times had good works and at times failed. By faith he entered in and by faith he walked. And a man, Father, who ultimately understood that he was not helping when he took things upon himself, but he was strictly to follow your lead, demonstrating his faith through his obedience. And as we've said many times in the study, he did not begin as Abraham, he began as Abram, but you turned him into Abraham, and you did so, Father, patiently, and you did it with great love, teaching him as a father. Father, as we sit here this morning and as we consider what you may be asking each of us to do in our walk, whether it's to serve in some way, whether it's to treat someone we know differently, whether it's to act differently as a mother or father, a child, a parent, a student, a friend, whether it's to spend our time differently and devote ourselves in new ways to following you, whether it's to set aside some temptations, some habits and things you know we should not have. There are things in our hearts, Father, you have placed it there, and we alone know them. But because we know that you know our hearts as well, we cannot hide. So I ask, Father, that the study of Abraham as it continues and has gone on for so long is is something that you can use in our hearts to show us how we are to live differently. Show us, Father, how we are to be more pleasing to you. And give us courage, Father, to take what we hear and act on it. And to not make excuses and to not delay. But following Abraham's example... Act in the very day that we hear. And then, Father, when we take those steps of obedience, I pray that our testimony would be such that you would use it in our families and within our close circle of friends so that we may be that influence to bring them to faith if it be your will. And then outside our family and friends to the greater world around us that we would be ambassadors. We would introduce people to something that we received so that we may be counted a servant. And thank you for Oak Hill Bible Church, Father, for a small but loving fellowship, for a group of people who want to do what your word says. May we come back next week. May you increase our number, if it be your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.